1: The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Tuesday, July 10th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Trump is in Europe today, moments before he landed. Donald Tusk, European Union Council president, took the opportunity to address President Trump directly.
2: I would like to address President Trump directly.
1: See, told you. Yes, Donald Trump is always demanding that our NATO allies pay more of the NATO bill. This is a vital security concern. Can you imagine, by the way, if we surveyed, let me give you a grab bag, FDR Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Scoop Jackson, every American who died in a trench in World War I or on the beaches of Normandy in World War II, and, and even all the generals that Trump is always saying are rolling over in their grave. And if we said to them, here's the big American ask in 2018 we want Germany to have a bigger military. Germany so far has been outsourcing its military to the U.S. and the U.S. has been providing most of the fighting forces that are pursuing Germany's national interests. So ask them, hey guys, what do you think of this? Our big foreign policy challenge is we need Germany to have a larger military buildup. Now, I'm going to say that during the lives of all of those departed souls, the phrase feature not a bug didn't exist. But the point is, it might not be bad for the United States to provide Germany's military, just judged against the scope of history and the downside of Teutonic militarism. By the way, it might be good for the English and French to outsource their military to us too. See the Hundred Years' War. Also FIFA finals. Maybe. Depends on how England does. But I want to get more global. And I want you in this space, offer my analysis of why Donald Trump does what he does. Okay, that's a big category. But does what he does. Likes who he likes. Allies with who he allies with internationally so what does he do he bullies the g7 he tosses aside the economic order crafted at Bretton wood he expresses total disregard for the western alliance all right at the same time he cozies up to autocrats he's always complimenting kim and duterte and putin lavish praise of the kind he would never give merkel or trudeau he asked about putin's excesses in a friendly forum called fox he attacks America. Will I get along with him? I have no idea. He's, he's a killer, I though. Won't.
0: Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. we got a lot of killers. Why, well, you think our country's so innocent?
1: So why? Why an alliance with our belligerents and a belligerence towards our allies? The answers that you've probably all heard have something to do with, well, he's being st- strategic, or he's just a defiant person and has a defiant personality, or he's susceptible to flattery, or that he's monarchic, or that he's anarchic. It's not exactly those. Some of those are partly right, but there's one word that mostly describes what he's doing internationally, and that word is rapacious. Donald Trump is rapacious. He wants what he doesn't have, and he has no regard for what he does have. The NATO alliance, our fairly successful economic system, you know, success just judged against the history of the world and every other economic system, you know, material abundance, freedom from want, that sort of thing. It's not perfect. Lord, no, Mr. Piketty, it's not perfect. It's pretty good. But that's already in place. And Trump, by instinct, knows that there will be people who will work hard to preserve it. You know, Adults and professionals. Just like there are laws and norms that hold society together. Trump cares not for them. Sometimes he wants to sidestep them. Sometimes he just takes them for granted. It's fairly ironic that he's a builder... He doesn't build much, but what he definitely doesn't do is he doesn't preserve systems or structures that are already in place. To him, those aren't opportunities. It's also why he says there is American carnage, because really, the system in terms of policing in America, it's going pretty well. That doesn't represent an opportunity to him, so he calls it a carnage. He pretends it's a crisis. If something doesn't already have his name on it, and it's going pretty well, it's not going to give him credit, so why give it credit? the rapacious soul doesn't want to preserve and you know he doesn't necessarily want to destroy that takes a lot of effort he's pretty indifferent to what it takes to have a successful system keep on functioning but when he sees something he doesn't have or something he's told he can't have that's exactly what he wants why because he doesn't have it that's why he cheated on all his wives that's why he probably cheated on all his taxes That's why he goes to great lengths to hype acquisitions, Trump U and the Eastern Airlines shuttle and USFL teams. So he wants them, he gets them, he says they're great, but he does little to maintain them. He's thrilled by conquering new lands, but bored by administering them. In fact, he doesn't even conquer new lands. He's more like the Conqueror's press agent who claims that he tamed the lands while all the Visigoths slip away and regroup. The rapacious character doesn't care for details, doesn't care for maintenance, doesn't care for goodness. He cares for acquisition. There are some aspects that are coherent in Trump's being anti-NATO. I'm not saying that they're smart, but they kind of make sense from a Bannonite perspective. An international alliance goes against the nationalism that he's selling. But none of that explains why he cozies up to the uncozy Kim and the disputatious Putin basically that he wants what he doesn't have and he takes for granted and really resents what he does have. There are a few things about all this sad situation that, Is in our favor, in the favor of uh, the normal people who want non-chaos in the world. One is that the NATO alliance is strong. Our European allies should be able to hold it together until we get a sane character in the White House. Two is that the American system does seem to be holding up to the strains of Trump's rapaciousness. And three is that Trump's game is weak. He's rapacious, but also incompetent. His rapacity has largely not borne fruit, except for the smallish things in life, like some golf courses and a fly-by-night e-college and underemployed Eastern European models. Well, I do have to admit there was that one brass ring that is valuable and that he reached for and that he grasped. It is, of course, the current office that he holds, and he did tarnish it in the process, but I still think it will resist total corrosion. On the show today... I spiel about an interesting sight I came upon the other day and how it got me to thinking about what we see in the movies and how that relates to life. But first, with more bad men doing bad things in the news and increasingly in the courts, I thought it was time to ask, what is the deal? What's the deal with Harvey and Bill Cosby and Kevin Spacey? We know they're loathsome. We know they're monstrous. And I know why we say that, but why are they like that? Emily Yaffe is here to try to offer some explanations. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year, and that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford.
2: And I'm Jess Bettencourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case.
1: Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. When powerful men transgress and transgress against women, we're seeing Harvey Weinstein facing what could be the rest of his life in jail. Same with Bill Cosby. So when when these transgressions occur, we say, why? The glib answer is because they can. But really, why? What is that deep-seated sickness within certain men that propels them to over and over again sexually violate women? Emily Yaffe has written about this in The Highline. and the answers are, well, they go a little bit against conventional wisdom, and they go a little bit to the heart of human sexuality, male sexuality. Emily, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. So what was the central question that this piece sought to answer?
2: As you framed it, what is going on, especially when we heard the accounts of the most serious, repeat? predators, it, there's almost a kabuki-like quality to it. Once you've read two or three or four Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Larry Nasser accounts, you know what is coming when the next one, you know a Harvey will invite you to a restaurant, oh, move the meeting to the hotel room, excuse himself to go to the bathroom, and come out in an open bathrobe. Uh, so the explanation was uh, I mean I, I collected a wide number of people saying well we know one thing we know about this it's not about sex it's about power but there seemed to be uh, a lack of acknowledgement this is about sex so I set out to explore uh, that unexplored aspect of this.
1: Well, I would definitely question, it's not about sex, it's about power when it comes to especially Bill Cosby, who, if he had gotten away with it, or I guess his ideal interaction would be, the women wouldn't have even known they were degraded. So, I mean, maybe there's some sort of weird way that he would know he'd have power over them, but that seems to complicate that argument very much.
2: Well, I think when we look at certain people, when we look at pedophile priests, I haven't seen, as those scandals broke, people saying, well, we know this isn't about sex, it's about power. Mm -hmm. And certainly a priest has a lot of power over uh, children, little boys, you know, no one else is there. If you wanted to just exercise your power, you could have them shine your shoes or run errands or do all sorts of stuff. But we see pedophile priests, pedophiles, are engaging, they're driven by, criminal sexual impulses. So I just wanted to bring back to this whole Me Too discussion. Some of the men, not all of them, but certainly the worst serial offenders seem to be engaging in repetitive sexual violations. So I, you know, ended up talking to a lot of psychologists, reading a lot of literature going back to the 1800s about what these sexual scripts are and where they come from.
1: Yeah, to me, it seems that not about sex, about power. That's probably true in some instances of rape and sexual assault. Perhaps it was overstated, but you can almost put it aside because to me, the question is more like it's not about sex. It's about sex mixed in with some sort of uh, cruelty Or violation. I mean, all of these guys are so rich that if all they wanted to do was have sex, they could hire prostitutes. So I think it's about the specific violative nature of the sex that's getting them off. Is that, did you find that? Absolutely.
2: Because as I raised the question early in the story, understanding Harvey about Harvey, why would a man who could have as much consensual sex with willing women as he wanted, prefer to masturbate into a potted plant in front of a horrified woman. And you get right to the heart of it. The consensual sex for certain people is not exciting. Now, this doesn't mean that Bill Cosby didn't have plenty of consensual sex, or all these men didn't have plenty or some consensual sex. But clearly, their sexuality Revolved around the violation. In this piece, Understanding Harvey, I had long interviews with a guy I call Michael, who had absolutely no power. At the same time, Harvey's exposing himself in his suite at the Beverly Peninsula— Uh, Michael's riding the Los Angeles County bus and exposing himself and he did this for years and he explained to me his thought process which is very similar to what Charlie Rose was thinking
1: which was something like they might like it
2: yes and this guy so I had these long talks with him about what he was doing and he said I was looking for a love connection and I felt look at the erect penis like it like me. He actually told me there were some women who responded positively. I said, "I do not believe you because I've had uh, you know on public transportation guys expose themselves like four or five times. It's it's always shocking and astounding." But he said, "No, there were enough positive responses to keep him going. And he did say, I got horrified responses. One woman took out a knife and said, put it away or I'm going to cut it off. Mm -hmm. So he was willing to acknowledge not everyone was positive. But in talking to the therapist, a lot of these guys say, well, if she was looking and didn't scream or take out, out a knife, maybe she was, you know, she actually did like it. If she didn't like it, uh, she would have screamed. Or, so, or
1: they convince themselves, as you write, it's not like he's he's uh, wading through the thousand to four ratio, uh, pinning his hopes on the four. He also convinces himself that the thousand horrified people go home and secretly do like it.
2: Right. As So the therapists call, call this cognitive dis- distortions. We call it self delusions. But I think you see, I mean, Charlie Rose said it shared feelings. Here's this boss in his 70s running around naked or in his bathrobe or, you know, lunging at young employees or calling them late at night describing his sex fantasies of their swimming in his pool. And he thinks that's all great. They've uh, always liked this.
1: So many of the experts you talk to trace an important thing that happened to these guys when they were young. Um, To the point where I almost was saying to myself, this seems like overly Freudian. This seems like a biopic. That one thing that happens in your youth plays out so often in your adulthood. But that's how frequently they say it happens?
2: I found this one of the most fascinating parts about this whole thing. That for many people, this lifetime sexual script gets written very, very early in life. And we're talking about you know elementary school kids, yes, I mean Freud um in some way, Freud was right that our sexuality is starts way younger than we're comfortable even acknowledging, but these therapist I talked to said, "Look, these scripts get written and set." Even before children fully realize this is about sex, I have an example in the story from one therapist who had a patient who sexuality revolved around wearing a yellow raincoat and masturbating. And that was how he got off. And he called it his sickness. He hated this But he could say exactly how this started. When he was a little boy, he was given an oversized fire truck and it came with a yellow raincoat and he would ride around on the fire truck, which would cause tingly feelings and that the yellow raincoat made him feel brave and strong. And that was it. Now, what we don't know, we have no idea why does this happen to some people and not most people. But it happens to some people, and many people with fetishes can exactly pinpoint that moment.
1: So what is, in general, the prescription that you bring to it that's a little bit different from what, say, the Me Too movement is bringing to it, which is, I think, prescriptions that neither you nor I would disagree with, like we can't allow these guys to go around unchallenged and people have to speak up, and also prosecutions should, you know, we should rethink both uh, statutes of limitations and what juries will do in terms of bringing convictions. Fine. But you talk about, you know, just something more tied in with our understanding or addressing male sexuality.
2: Well, as I said, the whole piece is about bringing sex back into this discussion and, you know, getting less squeamish and looking at it and finding out what we know what we don't know because uh, one of our myths in society is anyone who can, commits a sexual violation is a gross permanent predator that's it and that allows us to say you know you're out permanent banishment without looking at the range of behaviors what gets people there because there is there i mean the one thing the therapists emphasized over and over there is no one path to this behavior. So there's no one path out. We need to know what the drive is. Are people sociopaths, which probably means they're not treatable? Do they have a substance abuse and sort of some sort of, you know, bipolar disorder? There are many psychological disorders that go hand in hand with uh, sexual violations and the the therapist I spoke to, uh, you know, made very clear there are treatments not for everyone. And you know, if you're Larry Nasser, whatever treatments available, you're going to be in prison the rest of your life as you should be. But we're not safer if we fail to look at this and fail to discuss how do we address this, deal with it, can it be dealt with, can people get better? And Michael, the guy on the bus who is arrested around 10 times has not committed a sex crime in 15 years. So people can reform, but we so far have not wanted to have that discussion.
1: I know in the 70s or 80s, there was this notion, you know, if we were less repressive and more free about sexuality, we'd have fewer problems. I don't know that that has proven to be the case. I don't know that being more repressive helps. I just maybe think that that's beside the point. But reading your piece, it struck I I was struck with the idea, maybe if there was something about not pathologizing things that are tied up with sex, especially you know, to ten-year-olds. Maybe we'd be better off. But then again, I think about the kid in the yellow raincoat and the and the fire engines. Not, not like anyone did anything wrong uh, surrounding that. I just wonder, uh, societally or as a species, if we can get to a better, more healthy place.
2: Yeah, wouldn't a better, more healthy place be good? I do think. I do. I am concerned that in response to you know, Me Too, etc., which is so necessary and important, you don't – we're constantly swinging the pendulum from, you know, maybe too libertine to too repressive. What I worry is I'm seeing, you know, some things about discussing, touching, and consent with very small children and giving them the message, touch is bad. Touch is a precursor to abuse. And, you know, telling them that getting – sending the message that their feelings – as a, as I say, this piece talks about sexuality is shaped way before we want to think about it, that your feelings urges, you know, touching is all bad. Now, predators are bad, but all touching is not bad. There's even research about how in some elementary schools, teachers are told never touch the children – and that this is not good. Elementary school kids sometimes need a hug from the teacher, but that becomes quite dangerous. So that's the kind of
1: going too far that I think hurts everyone. Emily Yaffe is a contributing writer at The High Line, where this story appeared, and a contributing editor at The Atlantic. Thank you for your contributions here to The Gist, Emily.
2: So nice to talk to you. <laughs>
1: So, I'm biking along Kent Avenue. Kent Avenue is a long street that wraps around Williamsburg and it hugs the East River on the Brooklyn side. I am biking because I ran and I'm not a good runner or a fast runner or a particularly far runner. So, my usual radius for running is two miles out and then two miles back, but I've pretty much explored all, all those two miles. So, What I've decided to do was widen that circle to about three or four miles and then get on a bike, a city bike, and ride home. Good plan, except I'm in Williamsburg, which is further than I usually run, and I think I take a wrong turn. So now I'm on Kent Avenue and possibly going the wrong way, and then I stop. Because right in my path, in the middle of the road, is an overturned car, and it is on fire, and there doesn't seem to be anyone attending to it. Not that the whole scene is barren. There's a woman right in front of me, also on a city bike, who's on the phone, and she's frantic, and she's calling to the police. And then off to the side, there is uh, an Hasidic guy. There's actually a couple Hasidic guys, but one is running around saying something, doing things. There are no cops. There are no sirens. Not even in the distance are there sirens. When I bike, I listen to podcasts, so I think I was in the middle of Malcolm Gladwell debating Adam Grant. And then I take the earbuds out, and there's this car on fire in front of me. And it's a weird sight for all the obvious reasons, but also extra weird because the exact moment I saw it was very hard to process. Had I seen the accident, this is me retroactively thinking, had I seen the accident taking place, that might have been very troubling and scarring, but at least I'd understand what happens. A car flipped. Had I come across the scene with tons of cops and EMTs, you kind of know to orient yourself and then you look for the nexus of what their attention is and you see that it's a car and you, you process it backwards. But I'm just there and there's a car flipped over and the car's on fire and it's pre-first responders but post-actual accident. So in that very moment, I look at the Hasidic guys going close to the car and I say to myself, what if there's somebody in there? And then I say to myself, my immediate second thought was, what if the car explodes? And then my third thought is, no, that's stupid, cars don't explode. So I go towards the car and I look to see if there's anyone inside, but I start grappling with these thoughts. Wait, why do I think cars don't explode? I think it's the sort of thing I I read on Snopes. I mean, I think there's some evidentiary backing to it. It's definitely the sort of thing I'd say to my girlfriend, to Pierre and Daniel in the office. Nah, cars don't really explode. That's just a movie thing. But then I quickly look it up on the internet. I have no internet here. I need to go see if there's someone in the car. So I go close to the car. I've convinced myself that logic says cars don't explode. But of course, the pressing thing are these hundreds, if not thousands of movie images of cars exploding. The Hasidic guy says, don't worry, there's no one in there. I want to take his word because I'm not 100% sure cars don't explode. But I look in the passenger side and there seems to be no one there. And then just then the cops come. And the Hasidic guy goes up to them and said, I saw the whole thing. He ran that way. He ran that way. And so as he explains it to the cops, I get my exposition, which is... The guy says the man in the SUV, the turned over SUV, was arguing with another motorist. They took a turn sharply. The SUV flipped. The other motorist went on their way. The driver crawled out of the SUV and started running down the street. The police look at the driver's side and the passenger's side. There seemed to be no people there. And the cops tear down the street in the direction that the witness pointed to. All right. Now there's no danger. It seems that no one is going to die. Indeed, they don't. Massive amounts of ambulances and fire engines come. They put out the fire. I talked to the woman who was on the phone, who's really shaken up. I wound up taking, she was on a city bike. I, I went and docked it for her. As the paramedics who were there, there was no one in the car, but they helped calm her down. She was going through something horrible. And all I was left to do was ponder the question about cars exploding. So... I looked it up. I just did this today. Uh, the accident happened on Sunday, but I did my looking up today. I guess I kind of forgot about it. Do cars explode? I type into Google and it says, first result, outside of Hollywood, cars never explode. They sometimes catch on fire for the obvious reason. They're filled with gasoline. If the fuel tank or fuel line ruptures, the gasoline can come into contact with a hot engine or a spark and ignite, but not explode. That's from Quora. Quara is not exactly an authority. So I went to the car site Jalopnik 2013. They had an article that quoted a physicist, Stephen Grenandi, and he lays out why cars don't really explode. Of course, there's a lot of filmed counter evidence, is there not? You know, we spend a lot of time talking about representation on film, and sometimes that's a fine conversation to have. Let's have a Black James Bond. Let's have a female Hamlet. Why not? Also, I got to say that One of the easiest forms of activism, right above liking something on Facebook, is being against a casting choice. That is easy, easy activism. Scarlett Johansson was cast in a movie? No, I'm against that. Now, this was about her playing a trans character. Wait, didn't Jared Leto or Eddie Redmayne or Jeffrey Tambor play some version of trans characters? Why not criticize them? Well, they were a little criticized, but they also won awards. So it's a little harder to criticize a really good performance that everyone liked. Also, Scarlett Johansson. It is really fun to criticize her. Anyway... That's the representation argument we usually have. How about this representation argument? How about representing some cars that don't explode? I learn a lot of things from movies, and all these things might be wrong. Like, I believe that I know how to react in a hostage situation. I've never been in a hostage situation, but I've seen it played out hundreds of times. Here's what you don't say. You don't have the guts. Never say you don't have the guts. Maybe offer to switch the hostage for me. That's a thing that works. I assume. So if you put me in a hostage situation, I'm going to know what to do. And yet at the same time. I have no idea how to be reimbursed for using a doctor out of network, which is an actual thing that frequently comes up in my life. Other things I think I know from the movies. I don't know if I could physically execute it, but conceptually, I know how to hide out on a ledge to avoid detection. I know how to transverse a series of laser trip wires, and I know how to bribe an attack dog with a meat-based offering and calmness general calmness. But again, I can't get paid back for that dentist I went to in 2016. You might be hearing this and you might be saying, you know, I think I would process the situation of coming upon a flipped over burning car a little bit differently than you did, Mike. And that just may be. But you know who would process it best? Scarlett Johansson with Eddie Redmayne as the policeman with a secret. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who are aces at outrunning fireballs. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, knows that when transporting huge panes of glass across the street, it is at least a three man job two to hold the glass, and one to station himself down the road so that no car chases occur nearby. The gist synchronize our watches. Oh, no one wears watches. Okay, synchronize our smartphones. Are they already synchronized? Ah, oh, this heist is too damn easy. Peru de Peru and thanks for listening.